We had much to discuss this morning on the Israel-Gaza conflict. We heard from a CBS reporter in Jerusalem. We spoke with a Winnipeg rabbi who had an incredible message of hope and peace. And we asked the question, what happens next and how did this happen? Also, some huge news over the weekend from the Winnipeg Jets, as they announced on Thanksgiving Monday, they have extended the contracts of Mark Shifley and Connor Hellebuck. And we enjoyed ourselves discussing lineups. What will you wait in line for? Or what's something you can't believe anyone will wait in line for? I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. And this is the Tuesday, October 10th podcast for The Start. It is Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, producer Tyson Rewicki, and master control for Jeff Fortier today. And it's um, coming off the Thanksgiving long weekend, uh, an interesting, troubling mix of emotions. On one hand, we have some things to celebrate, some exciting news over the weekend, but of course, some news of international global concern, to say the least. As I connected and tried to connect with family and extended family and my husband and my kids over the weekend, I think my mind, along with so many others, was often thousands of kilometers away. I woke up in Minnedosa Saturday morning and my father-in-law said, did you read about Israel? And I hadn't yet. And my initial thought was, well, what now? I mean, so often there's rocket attacks or there's other things going on and you sort of become sadly, you know, almost immune to it. But when I started reading my God, I could not over and over again believe what I was seeing and hearing and an unprecedented terror attack by Hamas, which led to them shooting and killing hundreds of innocent people at a music festival near Gaza. They attacked Israel by air, land and sea. I don't know if we've ever seen that before. Certainly not in my lifetime, taking people by hostage. And I kept over <laughs> again repeating, how did this happen? And so I reached out to people. I had worked there just you know for a year and a half, 20 months in 2008, 2009. So the first person I connected with was one of the first people I ever met in Israel. And the sheer sadness in his voice, uh, I just it was heartbreaking. And he called it Israel's 9-11 because of the impact of the number of lives taken, but also the what apparently was intelligence forces taken by surprise. Like, how did this happen? And so that was how he referred to it. And I spoke to another uh, friend and colleague Yair, and the anger in his voice—you could feel it coming across on the keyboard, right? About about just how he couldn't believe this happened to his country, and also how he felt Israel should and could respond. And then that had us going back and forth: of Do you have kids that are in the army? Who do you know that might get called up? You know the ramifications there. And then I know someone else in Gaza who actually was out of Gaza this past week because they were taking a loved one to a medical appointment, and now they can't get back in. And as so as Israel turns to potentially move in by land, he's desperate to get home to be with loved ones. And so there's all these emotions. And here you are on a Thanksgiving weekend, Greg, reflecting on the peace of your nation and then looking across the ocean and thinking, my God, where could this go? Yeah, impossible not to be grateful for uh, where we lie our head at night, where we wake up every morning. And, you know, they've they've called this Israel's 9-11 and they've done some of the math and and just talk about how that doesn't even cover it. In terms of trying to, I, I, th- I think we always try and, and have some sort of comparison, something that we can relate to, something that we've been through, 
so that we can put it all into context. And you're right, we, we've become immune to certain activities in certain parts of the world because that's what happens there and, and that's what happens in this part of the world. And so when they saw this escalation, this, this terrorism and this brutality and everything that happened and the interviews that have been taking place, I saw an interview last night on one of the major news networks last night of a, of a woman who was taken from her home along with her neighbor's two children and walked across the border between Israel and Gaza and inexplicably her captors all of a sudden told her to go back. Just let her go and the children go. But the mother of the children, they don't have, they don't have any idea where she is. You know, it's the numbers have, have changed somewhat since yesterday, but well over a hundred or more Israeli citizens that have been, been captured or kidnapped or captive. And so now we, we wait to see what the next what the next move is, Israel has, has, has declared war, uh, siege on Gaza. Uh, what comes next is, um, well, history is unfolding before our eyes and it's uh, extraordinarily uh, uh, upsetting. It, it's hard to calculate, manage uh, all the emotions uh, that, that go with it. So everyone who's feeling this tomorrow, uh, this morning, I, my heart goes out to you. We'll have much to discuss on this today, including in our next segment, we'll check in with a CBS reporter in Jerusalem. And then after Global News at 635, we mentioned there were some exciting things over the weekend, something to celebrate, Greg, some extraordinary news from the Winnipeg Jets. Yeah, the Winnipeg Jets surprised everyone uh, yesterday. It's fan base, probably the rest of the National Hockey League, by sighing its two pending unrestricted free agents, Connor Hellebuck. Goaltender extraordinaire and uh, Mark Shifley, uh, both signing identical seven-year contracts. Kelly Moore will join us in about a half hour's time to to give us all the details and, and what this means for the Jets as they head into their 13th season in Winnipeg. It is Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. More than 1,500 people have been killed since the Hamas militant group launched an unprecedented surprise assault on Israel from Gaza on Saturday morning. That attack, of course, has led Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to declare, quote, we are at war. We want to get the very latest from Israel now, where we find CBS's Linda Gradstein in Jerusalem. Good morning, Linda. Good morning. So many questions and places to take this, but we know there's been an all-out assault by air by Israeli defense forces over Gaza over the past 48 hours. Tanks have also been seen moving closer to the border. What can you tell us about what's happening there in terms of whether they're going in by ground or what might be next for that? Well, there, as far as I know, there has not yet been a ground assault, but Israel has called up 300,000 reservists, which is really something that's unprecedented. And Israel has been uh, conducting bombing raids on Gaza almost without stop for the last 24 hours. Uh, and Hamas, the Hamas health ministry just said that 770 Palestinians have been killed in those airstrikes and another 4,000 have been wounded. In addition, uh, the Israeli army said that it has killed 
killed some 1,500 Palestinian terrorists inside Israeli territory and 900 Israelis, which is the highest death toll in the country's history, uh, have been killed uh, in the fighting, mostly in the in the assault on the first day. Melinda, you mentioned those reservists. Uh, for those of us in Canada unfamiliar with that system in Israel, can you give us an, an understanding of, of who are we talking about here? Which age sure. groups of people? Just give us some, you know, some education here, if you would. Sure. So first of all, um, in Israel, both men and women serve. Men serve for almost three years and women for two years. Uh, and then uh, many of them, mostly men, although not only, do reserve duty well into their 30s or even 40s, uh, depending on their jobs. And in this case, um, and they do often uh, up to a month of reserve duty a year so that they continue to train and they continue to be available to, to fight. There are thousands of Israelis living overseas who have actually come back to Israel to join their uh, units and to fight. Um, there have been some reports of some logistical difficulties, some units not having enough equipment, things like that. Um, but, uh, you know, basically everybody knows somebody who uh, has been called up for reserve duty, and it's something that was sort of expected. All of this started, by the way, on a Jewish holiday. Uh, so it sort of took a while till the call up happened, but but now um, you know three hundred thousand, and everybody sort of thinks that it's just a matter of time before there is an Israeli ground invasion of Gaza. That, however, is of course very complicated because Gaza is one of the most densely populated areas in the world. Speaking of that, you know, you talked about the connections all over the world and, and we're also keeping an eye on the hostage situation like so many because at least 100, I think that was one of the latest numbers, were taken by Hamas in Israel Saturday, uh, by all intents and purposes, brought back to Gaza. One might be a former Winnipegger who has been advocating over there for years. What can you tell us about the hostage situation? <sighs> yeah, that's something that's really unprecedented as well. Um, and and some of them uh, were wounded both in in as they were taken. Many of the hostages were taken from this sort of music party, almost kind of like a rave where there were thousands of people in a forest near Gaza uh, and a very well planned, apparently assault by Hamas on that music festival. Um, and so the people who were taken are mostly young people, as well as many of the people killed or people. Uh, in their 20s, you know, uh, young young people. And so the entire country is really kind of in mourning and is very afraid. Some of the hostages children, um, there was an 85-year-old grandmother taken. I spoke to her granddaughter, and she said that her grandmother was taken without her medicine and needs medicine. So um, there's a lot of concern uh, over these hostages. Hamas apparently offered to release the women and children in exchange for female prisoners in Israeli jails. Um, but, it, you know, we have to remember that uh, Hamas held an Israeli soldier for five years, uh, in, starting, I think, in 2005, and he was eventually released in exchange for uh, a thousand, over a thousand Palestinian prisoners. Linda, the region now, of course, this does not ha happen in isolation as uh, as localized as, as this began, I suppose. Uh, clashes, reports of clashes on the Lebanon-Israeli border, this whole region, what has been the reaction of Jordan, of Egypt? Uh, what are the concerns here in terms of escalation? 
Um, well, the, the question is whether um, Hezbollah, which is, uh, you know, an Iranian proxy in South Lebanon, is going to open a second front in this war. And that's something that Israel is very concerned about. Uh, so far, it hasn't happened. There have been some mortars fired from South Lebanon, but it's apparently Islamic Jihad, not Hezbollah. Um, and uh, Israel uh, has warned Hezbollah not to open a second front. Um, that said, uh, you know, it, it's going to sort of destabilize, it could potentially destabilize the entire region. And of course, the question is, you know, what is Iran's role in all of this? CBS's Linda Gradstein joining us live from Jerusalem. Linda, thank you very much for this. Thank you. This was an announcement many Jets fans may have thought was a practical joke. So yesterday afternoon, just a couple hours after the Jets wrapped up their first official practice with that 23-player roster they're going to take into Wednesday's season opener in Calgary, the Jets dropped what I, I think it's safe to say it was a bombshell on the local market and maybe right across the league, Greg, because we've been talking about this for months. If not, it feels like years we've been talking about these two. The future of center Mike Shifley and goalie Connor Hellebuck. Well... We learned they've signed identical seven-year U.S. $59.5 million contract extensions with an average annual value of $8.5 million American dollars. Yeah, both Shifley and Hellebuck were set to enter the 2023-24 season on expiring contracts, which would have taken them into unrestricted free agency. 680 CGOB's sports director and guru of all things hockey joins us now. Kelly, good morning. You know, this guy, uh, this uh, signing guys brought me back to the days when uh, the trio that now hosts the start. Get out of here. (laughs) Finish that sentence. 59.5 million divided by a thousand million gets us. Anyway, carry on, Kelly. Did we lose Kelly? Yeah, Dyson's oh, not Dyson's says, yeah. I thought that was just a well-timed <laughs> a dramatic, end of pause. dramatic pause for him, just All trying right. to poke fun at uh, any <laughs> contracts that may or may not get signed around here. When we get Kelly back, let us know. Uh, in the meantime, I'm going to run into Tyson and give him the cell number just in case. Yeah, sure. That sounds you good. You talk about whether or not oh, you were surprised. Looks like Kelly's back. No, no not back. All not right. Back. I surprised? was surprised. I was cutting my grass yesterday, and I've got my earbuds in, and I'm just, you know, enjoying... It was a beautiful day to be outside. I'm cutting my grass, and one of my kids comes running outside. So, of course, I figure something has happened to one of the other kids or, or something. Yeah. And he's got his phone. He goes, you're not going to believe what just happened. I said, you're right. I don't believe it. Show it to me. Who's the source? <laughs> the Jets. I'm like, okay, that's, pretty rock. that's a pretty rock solid source. Kelly, good morning once again. Uh, we appreciate the, uh, the hyperbole with regard to comparing – the announcement of, of this team coming together to, to Shifley and Hellebuck re-upping with the Jets. Did you see this coming at all? Not one iota. As a matter of fact, I was driving home uh, from uh, uh, the Hockey for All Center after the practice yesterday, and uh, we, we were having our Thanksgiving dinner here, so I kind of hit the ground running in the house, and then uh, I, uh, I got your text, and that's when I realized, you know, something was up, so I immediately checked my phone, and bingo, there's this news that absolutely came out of left field. I mean, when I walked into the Jets dressing room after the practice, you know, Connor Hellebuck sitting there in his stall getting, you know, changed as he normally does, there was nothing, I mean, nothing to suggest 
something of this magnitude uh, had just been executed. Kelly, so uh, I told you about this. Is this is this is 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 this what I'm getting out of this? I actually broke yeah, the news I, to you. Yes, I had. I, I literally arrived in the house. My wife had a million things for me to do, so <laughs> I put down my phone, uh, started doing it. The uh, the text pings, and of course, I go to check it. And then I see uh, on my phone as well the uh, the news release from the uh, uh, from the Winnipeg Jets. So uh, you know I, I I would have seen it you know certainly eventually because you're always checking your phone at this time of the year. But uh, yeah, that was uh, that was when I first saw the news because uh, I, when I'm driving uh, I don't have all the modern technology <laughs> to uh, you know to uh, be uh, monitoring the phone. So but it was. Again, to get back to the real point of this, this was absolutely astonishing. So let's talk about what it means, Kelly, because these aren't just contracts for a couple of years. They've, they're identical seven-year each contract. So what does that say about, you know, the what might happen on the ice in the future, but overall what the franchise is saying by locking in these two? Well, yeah, it... it... And, and the fact that it comes a day, you know, a couple of days before the season starts, uh, I mean, we'll find out more at 11.30 this morning when uh, the two players, Ed Kevin Chevalier, off speak. But you'd have to think that somewhere along the line, it was communicated, whether by the team uh, or by the players' representatives or both, that uh, it was important to get this done before the bullets started to fly as far as the regular season was concerned. So, you know, and, and what this says is that the Winnipeg Jets uh, are true to their word. Mark Chipman said it. Kevin Chevaldeoff said it. They are not interested in a rebuild in the, the slightest sense uh, that they feel that they can continue to ice a competitive team. That was the overwhelming message that I received when I saw this. Now, Kelly, these contracts kick in next season. Both players are 30 years old. Should the length of these contracts be a concern? Well, it's always a risk. There's, you know, there's no doubt about it. I remember when uh, Blake Wheeler signed his deal for five years. You know, I think he was 32 or 33 at the time. And you start to think, okay, you know, what is the player going to be like when he's 37, 38? Both, both players will be 38 years old. Uh, when these contracts expire, uh, but, uh, you know, Mark Shifley <laughs> uh, looks after his body like it's a temple, uh, as does Connor Hellebuck, uh, and, and the way that Hellebuck tends goal, he's very efficient in his movements, so I would say that the risk for these two players in particular uh, is mitigated to a lesser degree than it would be for, you know, someone else, but, yeah, there's, there's risk involved, but, uh, you know, that's... Uh, uh, you know, the, that's the price that you have to pay to keep marquee talent. And, uh, and so, you know, we'll see how this plays out, but, uh, yeah, it, it, I was, I was always wondering if it was going to be three to five years, uh, you know, so these players would still have the ability, uh, while they were playing well to, uh, you know, if it didn't work out here to, to still chase that dream of a Stanley cup. But it, it's quite evident that if these contracts run their course, both, Mark Shifley and Connor Hellebuck are going to play their entire careers as Winnipeg Jet 
And I think that's pretty significant. Well, Kelly, there'll be lots of room for conversation, social media alive with discussion uh, immediately following what this means long term and uh, the speculation and and all those discussions are, are part of the fun of being a fan. As you mentioned, General Manager Kevin Sheveldayoff, Head Coach Rick Bonus, along with Connor Hellebuck and Mark Scheifele will speak to the fans via the media this morning at 1130. Do you know where we can hear that, Kelly? Yeah, you can hear it right here on 680 CJOB. It is our uh, intention to carry that live. Uh, as far as I know, uh, each of the players and Kevin Shoveldayoff will speak. There'll be uh, questions from the floor. So uh, the chance at uh, 680 CJOB and, of course, uh, globalnews.ca and uh, 680 or CJOB.com rather uh, for live streaming. But, you know, I'll leave you guys with this. Yesterday marked the 12-year anniversary of the official return of the National Hockey League to Winnipeg. It was October 9th, 2011. Uh, the Jets lost 5-1 to Montreal. Mark Shifley played in that game. Kelly Moore joining us live on the start. Kelly, always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Yeah, sorry for the technical difficulties. Uh, I, I, I hope uh, you won't think of me badly. I blame the turkey. <laughs> It's going to be you who chooses which prize is given away at 9.15. And this has to do with something I saw over the weekend that made me chuckle because I imagine there are quite a few people who can relate to this sentiment. Uh, Listener Dan, a.k.a. the Earl of Eli, tweeted over the weekend, uh, and he included a panoramic picture that he took (laughs) with the caption, me and 300 other morons standing in line at Costco for a stupid pumpkin pie. And another one of my buddies was lamenting how long it took him to get a pumpkin pie at Costco as well. And I just thought, what are the things you will wait in line for? Or perhaps what are the things that you can't believe people will wait in line for? 204-780-6868. Cameron Poitras, why don't we start with you, sir? I, I got to go with gas. Gas is the thing I don't <laughs> understand that people will wait long, long lines for. They will, like... um I remember there was a, a situation where, uh, wow, I mean, it's just, it's constant. Like you'll sit in a line for, um, uh, 45 minutes to an hour. Sometimes some, some of these people, they will idle through that burn more gas than, than they would have spent if they would have just went somewhere else and spent the extra five cents. That's one thing I, I don't understand. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, same here. And I, I, I sort of, I sort of come at that as the time is money. Like, yeah, I might save a totally. few bucks here, but how much time am I losing, and what impact is that going to have? However, speaking of Costco, I will wait in line for a dollar fifty hot dog and pop. <laughs> I will wait in a long, I will wait in a long line for that. And That's just a good deal. That's not the same as like you're when you do the math on gas, you might be wasting money, not just mm-hmm. your time. Yes, like you're sitting there for the deal, but then you burn say two liters of gas or even one and a half hour. Yeah. You add up the dollars and cents. It doesn't add up. Yeah, totally. But the hot dog and poutine at Costco that adds pretty up. good. Yeah, and then you got to wait for the table to free up. You don't need a table. I, I that use the, is a free for all. I use the garbage can. I just eat on top of the garbage can. Yeah. <laughs> Solid with you. Yeah, that that felt like, like I've only eaten at Costco once in the last thirty years, and I felt like it was a like Lord of the Flies. Like it was just absolute chaos and anarchy. The second somebody would even start to get up, you'd see five people coming from different directions for the table. Like, wow. There's easily a hundred people waiting for foods or sitting at that table in like the, in like, I don't know, the cafeteria area. And there's only like eight tables that's done on purpose. There's something nefarious going on. I'm not sure. <laughs> they're creating demand. They're creating hype. 
All of the above. All it's right of the next above, to those yep. tires. Next thing you know, you're going to have a hot dog, <laughs> a drink, and four tires yeah. in your cart. Something like that. <laughs> uh, Sarah McCarthy, what about you? First of all, I've never had a Costco pumpkin pie. Maybe this is why, because the lines are so long, and I just do not want to wait for that. It's just okay. Okay. No, the, 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 the thing with the Costco pie is it's huge. It's yeah. the size, I think. Yeah. And, and, so and it's seven the whole bucks. It's, that's right. The cost yeah. of it, okay. it like, it's like the hot dog. It's okay. like the dessert version of the hot Cost dog. effective. Yeah. Okay, I see. Well, I've probably wasted countless hours in total waiting in line for coffee, especially during my college years. Any college or university campus, the lines at Tim Hortons, Starbucks, whatever chain, so long. <laughs> and I would wait in it. I would be too late to stay at home and make a coffee, but I would leave enough time to wait in that line. Like, make that make sense. I, it doesn't. Uh, it, do- it doesn't. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm a Disney adult. Get over it. Um, <laughs> at Disney World, there's a Starbucks in each one of the parks in Disney World. And people will wait, I'm not joking, two hours for a Starbucks mm. coffee there. It's I like, you're at Disney World. What are you doing you waiting get, in line for a, a coffee? Well, I think you get conditioned at Disney, no? You're, all, you're always waiting so, in so a this line. Was but there's an exciting event at the end of it, not a coffee that you could get anywhere. So this was mine, was Disney. The fact that you will save all your extra income for sometimes a decade... You fly halfway around the world, halfway across the continent. (laughs) You take up all your holidays to go and spend tens of thousands of dollars potentially for a week to stand in line two hours at a time. Mm -hmm. Disney is absolutely genius. (laughs) I want that playbook because nobody else could convince you to do what they do. And then to go and spend the amount of money you do just to wait in a line. And they're so good at hiding the line. Oh, yes. <laughs> On top of that. If you're a veteran, like I'd like to consider myself, you won't wait any longer than a half hour. You know how long the lines are when they're lying, when they tell you it's 30 minutes, but it's not. You know the length of the line. I got it all figured out. I got their system mm-hmm. down pat. It's mm-hmm. sort of like this is a terrible, but I think apt comparison. Like childbirth, like there's this anticipation, you're waiting, you're like, oh, it's going to be so great. I can't wait to see this kid. It's going to be amazing. It's amazing. And then you get there and you're like close to the finish. You're like, why am I doing this? This is terrible. This is painful. This is awful. Who would put themselves through this? And then you have the ride of birth and you see this kid and you're like, woohoo, how amazing. Let's do this again. And you just, it's like, (laughs) sort of the same. Pirates yeah. of the Caribbean and like uh, and once, childbirth once exactly finish, the same. Once you, the, once you finish the ride, you're like totally worth it. Let's do it again. You know, Tyson Rewicki and Master Control. What about you? I'm on the same boat. I will not wait in line at the theme park. And there, to me, there's no better feeling than walking up the fast pace or fast pass line, mm-hmm. and you're just looking at everyone, Suckers. just waiting there, just giving them the peace <laughs> sign. And then even when you get back, if you if you do it really quick. And you can come back and lap them again. <laughs> oh, yeah. You just see you just see the anger building up Ooh. in the line. There's you can use your fast pass twice. Oh, maybe. I I know you used no. to at, at Universal. Not anymore. No, no. Oh. But if you, if you listen, when you when 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 the whole park shuts down after the after the fireworks, everybody leaves, and it's like me and my wife. That's when we come alive. Sprint. That's when we come alive, <laughs> and we just go. It's and we just look at each other. It's a walk on. It's a walk on. <laughs> we're walking on. Like- we're walking on to Seven Dwarfs. We're walking on to Space Mountain. It's a walk on. I the feel best. like you should be hired. Like this is a mm-hmm. job you could do, Cam, where we hire you to like escort people. He doesn't want to give uh, away his tricks. No, for when like he's there. Well, there was at Space Mountain last time I was there. It said it said oh forty five minute wait, and the line was outside. And I said I was talking to my brother. I said no, no, that is a two and a half hour line. He says, listen to me, I will show you the way, Padawan. <laughs> <laughs> does lying. Disney have Does Disney have a single riders line? 
Uh, in some, in some, at like, Universal, that's what we did because uh, with my kids, we would just go in. It's like, who cares if we uh, go together? Uh, yeah, no big deal. I'd just be right in front of you, right behind you. We did the sing, just What's blew this? past, blew past the lineups. Single rider line, single rider line yeah, for almost them. all yeah. of the of the attractions at Universal in Hollywood. Oh, mm-hmm. it's been a while since I've been to a amusement park. Right, ten years. I don't get now standing in line for the electronics. Like I got mm. at 20 years ago when the first iPhone came out or something, you know, it was so new. Oh. But the people now who are on iPhone 476.6 <laughs> and they're still standing in line for that, I'm not sure about Is that. Is it really that different than the other, the other one? Maybe it's not. Ask, any different it than isn't. the other one. The, the first of anything, I can, I can wrap my head Titanium. around. What about uh, like when they had those... Those NES Classic or the Super Nintendo Classic, like those the, the 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 versions that had like thirty games on them, and they only had like three hundred units world available worldwide. Yeah, if it's a limited edition on something, I suppose, and you're super into it, I can appreciate that. Yeah. But when it's just the straight up, these shoes are coming out, or this phone's coming out, and eventually you'll oh, all be able to have don't one. Don't go to the shoes thing. I'm not Nike it. store. Lots of sneakerheads are gonna have these texting in here. Loren sneakers. I don't. Oh, for at the outlet mall, Nike, hundred percent huge lines. I don't get it. It's not my thing. Maybe it will be one day. I don't know. Flipping sneakers is big oh, business. Yeah. It's Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. What's something you will wait in line for? Like the Earl of Eli telling us how long he had to wait in line for a pumpkin pie at Costco? Or what? what's something that you just can't believe people wait in line for? What does Jeff have for us? Jeff says, I generally won't wait in line for anything if I can help it, but boarding a plane pretty much requires one to queue up. For the life of me, I don't know how the boarding zone hierarchy works, but I consistently end up in the zone with the largest mass of passengers and the longest lines. Ugh, says Jeff. To combat this, I've started lining up for a zone with a shorter line that I have no legitimate right to be in. I merely zoom in to the boarding pass QR code so the zone is not visible on my phone. Judge me if you have to. But it works for me. How do you sleep at night, Jeff? (laughs) The thing about those zones is that it's you get to the point where you're waiting in line and then you look around and you say, Okay, so we're all just zone four, right? That's what just happened because there's twelve people combined in the other one, two, three, and there are ninety seven of us are zone four. And I also don't get the lineups early for people with kids. Put up your hand if you want to get on that plane early with your kid. But when mine were little, nothing seemed more dumb than getting on that plane. Early? Early. To put them on the plane just have them longer? Longer sitting there when they're toddlers. <laughs> Let's board the women and children and the, the families first. What? Why? No, shove us on last, like last possible second. That's a fair point. Never would have thought I think about it's that. the strollers and the sheer volume of items you have, right? And then you'll have no place for your diaper bags, blah, blah, blah. But yeah. What does Tracy say? Also on the subject of airplanes. Standing in line to board a plane, you then stand in line after you check in, then stand in line in the plane. I spend the time reading and enjoying my cup of tea. Instead, I don't understand this when your seat is assigned. People like to just get on that plane. Fair. We're all going to the same place, aren't we? Well, don't they call you based on where you are seated in the plane? Yeah, in the zone. It was zone one, two, three, four, five. But people just lie or go when they want to or... Claim to be military or I don't know what. <laughs> I was on a Delta flight. I think I said this to you guys last fall and it was comical how many, they didn't do it by zones. 
They did it by like your Delta Silver, Delta Gold, Delta Rainbow, Delta Star, Delta Diamond, Delta Platinum, Delta Gray, Delta Blue. And you're like, how many possible layers of rewards can there be here? And again, the Delta Star was in front of the Delta Platinum who was in front of the Delta Blue. You're all going to the Load same spot. the plane from the outside in. Window people first, aisle people second, uh, or yeah, uh, middle people second, and then the aisle people. I think they should actually just have a rope, and then they just three, two, one. Three, four, rope all? opens up, and uh, you just run. Run to that plane. Sort of how it feels. <laughs> that sounds responsible and practical. I like it. It is Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Thank you very much for joining us on this Tuesday morning. And let's just get right back into the top story. Hamas is currently holding a substantial number of people hostage. That, according to Israel's military, as fears grow, those could include foreign nationals from up to 12 different countries who are missing after the militant group's unprecedented attack. Yeah, so the IDF, the military, has weighed in in terms of how many people they think might be held captive. Israel's ambassador to the United Nations says he believes that number could between be between 100 and 150 people held captive in Gaza and included in that group is former Winnipegger, 74-year-old Canadian-Israeli Vivian Silver. Silver spent her adult life campaigning for peace and human rights for Palestinians, particularly those living in impoverished Gaza. Greg. Yeah, we know Winnipeg's Jewish and non-Jewish community is hurting this morning. Rabbi Matt Leibel joins us this morning. On the start, Matt, good morning. Morning. Thanks for having me on. Good morning to you guys. Well, we appreciate uh, your insight on this. Uh, I guess the best way to start, uh, what was this weekend like for you? Yeah, so, I mean, it was, uh, you know, woke up Saturday morning to my wife giving me the heads up about the war and the news that had broken and then reading and then obviously hearing things that, that had as they unfolded throughout Saturday, Sunday, the last couple of days, you know, you talk about Vivian. Um, I don't know her well, but I know her and I know her family and I knew her mother very well. And it was only a few years ago. I remember before her mother had passed away, sweet, wonderful lady that she was in the hospital and, you know, family had gathered and I was there and had an incredible moment with, with her and her siblings. So hearing you talk about it this morning, Gives me the same reaction that I had throughout the weekend, like a lot of Jewish people. I mean, my, my cousins, until last week, lived in Tel Aviv, and they just moved. And they were here over the weekend, and we were talking about it. And, and, and I've got, we've got a rabbi colleague in town who splits his year back and forth between Winnipeg and Israel, where all his family lives in Israel. So uh, this, this whole situation is, the reactions you have are, you know, they're visceral. They're they're You feel it. You feel sick. You feel broken. You feel sad, angry. Everything all at once. And and when you know people, you can understand why this becomes so charged emotionally for people on on all sides because it's been going on for so long. Generationally, you know people in your grandparents' generation, your parents' generation, your generation, and and the whole thing. I'm thinking the entire weekend is <laughs> there was. When I went out years ago, I remember this that, that the band Moxie Fruvis had a song about the Gulf War, a Gulf War song, and they, and they talked about living in Canada and, and like growing up and playing hockey and just wanting to watch your kids grow old. And, and there's that, this line in that song, like, this kind of life makes that violence unthinkable. And, and 
even though I grew up hearing about it through Jewish day school and, and all the contacts and, and talking about Israel, and it's just been kind of a fact of life as long as Israel's existed as a country. It's been at war. Um, every time it comes up again, it feels like it hurts maybe a little bit more. And it's just, it's just, it's very tough. It's, it's very tough for, um, for any situation where these kinds of innocent people get caught on both sides. And, and yeah, my heart breaks for, for everything going on. And, and yeah, so that was a long rambling answer to your opening question of how the weekend was. I would say that I ran into a couple of people and the looks on their faces say it all, right? Everyone's reacting in some kind of form like this. Well, those connections, you know, we talk about it being a big world, but a small world all the time, right? And how you always, when you hear these things, you think, I hope I don't know someone involved. And then you find out you do. So there's that layer to it, that. And then you talk about just having grown up with this, you know, the generations who've lived through all this. How how do you, what do you do with all these emotions? How do you unpack all those when you're sitting in that roller coaster? Well, I I can tell you what not to do. (laughs) Sometimes I can tell you what not to do better than what to do. I think what to do is you have to you have to find ways to express how you're feeling. You have to find ways to talk to, talk to people. I mean, in, in my life as a rabbi, I deal with high emotions all the time. For example, when you're with families for funerals, bottling up anything in any kind of crisis. I don't need to be a psychologist or you know pretend to be one to tell you that's the beginning of a bad idea. So you have to find places, and they have to be healthy outlets for this kind of expression. You know, I think when I was kind of getting to what not to do. <laughs> is not to rush to social media. <laughs> That's one of the places that I would tell people to stay away from. One of the things, you know, Greg reached out to me yesterday and, and asked me to come on, and, and we were kind of texting back and forth, and, and one of the things he sent my way was, you know, what do non-Jewish Manitobans do? And I say, well, the first thing, my best friend I've grown up with for, for years, um, not Jewish, Saturday afternoon or early, late morning, he texted me. And, and that's the first thing. If you know people just reaching out, just that, that idea of being there and feeling not alone. These sorts of situations can bring out loneliness and isolation and terror and fear and all kinds of the negative emotions. So just friendship and companionship and camaraderie, just reaching out is kind of the first thing. But the other thing, among this whole mess of this war and everything going on in the Middle East for the generations we've been talking about, is the intense misinformation that's out there. And that's kind of where social media scares me. So, I mean, I, I, I've never been on social media. I've never had Facebook. I got off Twitter as soon as I left the radio when I was doing TSN and the sports thing. And I've never had Instagram or any of those other things. And, and part of it is that there's just, there's no filter for things. There's no censorship. And, and you, you get people who can hide behind fa- you know, faceless situations and then just throw s- fuel on fire and, and take an already emotionally charged situation. Like we were talking about with visceral human honest reactions on both sides and then just and just make the whole thing just just terrible just so much worse if that's even possible but but it is so you have to try and find a way to get the proper information and understand the very deep complexities and layers to what's going on there one place i can turn people to at the end of april the jewish federation brought in um, a woman named noah tishby who is an activist, an Israeli-American, who has produced shows on HBO and been a guest on Bill Maher and things like that. But she's been an activist and, and really just trying to spread facts and information. She's got a book on Israel called Israel. And I mean, that's a place that I would steer people to because it informs, which is power. The knowledge is power in a situation like this. Misinformation is very dangerous. So knowledge is power. And then it leaves room for people to figure out where they fall. You know, because this this whole situation, you're bringing religion and culture and politics and geography and a lot of 
really big issues all into one war, one huge war. And it's it's so layered that 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 to me, for people who are, you know, where we are, have the privilege of having this kind of distance to view it. Sometimes that actually keeps us farther away and makes it easier for misinformation to spread. So getting informed to me is is first and foremost, and then also reaching out to people to try and, um, to, you know, these moments in, in the world remind us why uh, humanity is sometimes terrible. But I will always be someone championing peace and always championing that humanity is better than this. And so reaching out to people, I mean, that sometimes the best you can do and all you need to do. Our guest is Rabbi Matt Leibel. And Rabbi, there have been pro-Palestine rallies across Canada, including here in Winnipeg yesterday. So how do you view those events as a Canadian? Well, the first thing I would say is, thank God we live in a country that has freedom of speech and freedom of assembly and that people have the right to be whatever they are and to express it and to walk streets in cities across the country, whether they're gay or straight or however they identify their orientation, their gender, anything. Um, Not every country, lots of countries in the world don't offer those kinds of freedoms. Um, I'm I'm proud as a Jewish person and, and that Israel is a country that does offer a lot of those freedoms. And so that's my first reaction as a Canadian. But at the same time, um, I've always been a person who would, like I said in the last question we were talking, I'm a, I'm a big fan of championing peace. Tonight there's going to be a solidarity rally for, for Israel, a solidarity rally for Israel at the Asper Jewish Community Campus. I think it's at 7 o'clock tonight. And in my experiences, those, those rallies are often about peace and trying to push forward, kind of what we were talking about Vivian Silver and something that she fought through her entire life and the decades that she's lived in Israel. Uh, Wherever you're gathering, trying to make the message one of hope is always something that I would prefer, regardless of your politics or anything like that. I think that everyone can try and find a common ground. Like, who out there would stand for terror? Who out there would stand for for children being caught in in the fray and, and their lives being something so much more terrible than what that should be? You know, getting to school or getting to daycare or the things that I don't take for granted with my kids. So to me, as long as the rallies send a message of standing together and of peace and of progress and trying to move forward and a message of hope as opposed to messages of destruction or, you know, anything aggressive or hostile, I'm all for it. And again, I'm so thankful that I live in Canada. I, I love Israel. I've been to Israel and I support any person, Jewish or not Jewish, who finds a strong pull to move there be part of their identity and expression of all of that. For a lot of Jewish people, that's very true, and I respect and admire all of that. I'm proud to be a Jewish person living in Canada, and part of that is that I've never once ever felt unsafe walking the streets of Canada um, as a Jewish person, proud and expressing my Judaism, and I think everybody should feel proud to express their culture, their religion, their feelings, their beliefs. Again, but we're, we're trying to work together here. We're trying to find a common ground and move forward. And as long as that's the underlying message, I'm for it. Well, regardless of our faith, our religion, our our culture, hopefully we're all praying for peace in one way or another over the next few days because uh, the world's going to need that. Matt, thank you for this. Rabbi, forgive my, forgive my <laughs> informality. Uh, known you for a long time. You're uh, one of the very special people in our community. We appreciate you sharing your thoughts with us this morning. Love to you, my right. brother. 
Thank you to uh, to all three of you and to everybody listening. And, and I really appreciate the opportunity to come on and speak. Thank you for for covering this and for talking about it. It's it's very it's very emotional and it's very difficult. And shying away is always easier, but it's never better. So talking about it, I um, I applaud all of us and especially the three of you for having me on. Thank you so much. And I couldn't agree more, Greg, with your with your sentiment. Uh, a prayer for peace. That's that's what it's all about. Let's hope. We're asking you about lineups. What's stuff that you will wait in line for or the stuff you won't wait in line for. And we want to talk about elevators in a moment. Waiting in line for an elevator sucks. But the one thing I, and I talked about this earlier this year, and I witnessed a phenomenon in Clear Lake that just baffled me because I'm not a cinnamon bun guy. And we had a number of listeners pointing out that you have to get the cinnamon buns at the White House. I don't hate them. I just, I don't, you know, whatever. If if I have one, great. Like the Tall Grass Prairie company, they Mm -hmm. make good cinnamon buns, sure. But uh, I didn't go there because I was craving cinnamon buns. I went there because I was craving breakfast. wanted a delicious breakfast. And we sat on the patio and like ordered, ate, left. And there were still people on the sidewalk waiting to get in to the White House to buy cinnamon buns. The lineup to go in there is crazy. The popularity of that place is fascinating. And it's not because none of it isn't good. It's good. It's just that you're waiting to eat this food. And then for me, food, like if I'm waiting that long, it better be either free corn in Morden or like just (laughs) superior. And it's good. But I'm not a cinnamon bun person either, so I shouldn't be answering this question. It might, it's probably, it probably ties into one of the, maybe it's the same reason why people will wait in line at the Morden Corn and Apple Festival to get the free corn because it's the one time of year where you, like for a lot of these, I bet you for a lot of the people in that line outside the White House, that's the one time that year where they're going to get to have them. Sure, really it's not good every point. weekend, it's just the one time. Yeah. Yeah, so, you're not lining up every Saturday for that. It might be your one weekend, like you say, in Clear Lake. And so, part of the ritual and it might be your first time and someone said wait in line yeah if you're going there you gotta wait in line for those white house cinnamon buns yeah it's like if i if i go make my way out to winnipeg beach or sandy hook i have to go to salty's to get a burger like i just and i knew that my buddies were making food they were making dinner that night and like nope i'm getting salty so. and then you had dinner no, no. Oh, after after eating salty's burger and poutine, no way. You just sat and watched them rubbing your, rubbing your stomach. Yep. I don't know if I've been to salty's. Worth it to stand in line? Oh yeah, yeah. It's a good burger, but it did. But that's part of the ritual, right? Like I, if I'm going out there, well, I got to go to salty's. Mm-hmm. So that's what I would imagine. That's probably what it is for some for some of those waiting in line for those cinnamon buns because it's just like you mentioned. It's part of the ritual. It completes the experience. Nostalgia. It wouldn't be the same. Yeah. There's a couple places I've gone back to this summer where I think, what is this? Why are we? So excited about this, but then at the end of it, you also really enjoyed it. I don't know. Well, we always used to, when we had our restaurant in uh, back in Vernon, you know, you're always trying to think of different ways to, to drum up business. And it always seemed, you know, over the years, nightclubs, when there's a lineup, yeah, you're drawn to the club with them, but there's a nightclub right across the street that there's no line. Well, that means there's nobody there. Exactly. Right. It's the FOMO. Fear of missing out, fear of losing out on being a part of what's happening. And so uh, one of my good friends is a teacher. He says, I'll bring my students down one Thursday night and we'll just line them up on the front street. And then, then you'll get busy. 
Really? <laughs> well, that's what we thought. We figured everybody's going somewhere else, waiting 10, 15, 20, 25 minutes. So maybe what we need to do to pack this place is to start a lineup. It's and true. then everybody will get in the lineup because they want to know what's going on. Must be worth lining up for. Did you try it? No, I never tried it. Mm. Wasn't Wasn't courageous enough to try it. So tell us your lineup story for a chance to win. We'll pick a winner at 9.15. But you've been hearing about this in the in the news with Sarah. And this is an interesting story. And Mackling has a connection, it seems. A Winnipegger turned local viral sensation has passed the torch of elevator inspections to a new examiner. Global's Catherine Dornian has more. Cheryl Lashik never expected to become a household name by working for the provincial government. It's really shocking because it just comes out of, out of nowhere. It's just my, it's my job, right? This is just what I... What I do. For over 10 years, her name appeared on the safety permit of every elevator in Manitoba. The public began calling her the Elevator Queen and lifted her up to meme status through fan pages and art. I'm not sure where it all came from. All I can say is that it just snowballed and Manitobans and Winnipeggers are just kooky like that. But now her reign has ended. Recently, permits have begun rolling out with a new name on them. The transfer of power was peaceful, as Cheryl is now in an executive director role overseeing a wider variety of infrastructure. The vertical infrastructure like schools, uh, Manitoba housing, correctional facilities, uh, the Manitoba legislative building, all of the government-owned assets. She promises Manitobans they'll be just as happy with her successor, Brian Delury. I've known Ryan for over 20 years in many capacities. We've worked together for, for so long. He has, he, you guys are in good hands. He'll do, he'll do a great job. Though her fame was unexpected, Cheryl has taken it in stride. She displays some of the fan art in her home and even commissioned a companion piece for her partner. She's glad it's inspired people to take an interest in aspects of engineering they may not have considered before. There's so many facets of it. You don't need to just, you know, you don't need to be working in the field. You, you can be designing. You can, you know, be creating and, you know, managing teams. And though she's passed on the crown, her time as the elevator queen will remain with her throughout her career. It definitely, you know, is a really, really fun way to, you know, show up for work or, you know, have some recognition. Catherine Dornian, Global News. So in the mid-1980s, my, my now late friend Bobby Zoe used to always joke, about who my great uncle was. His uncle, he's the guy that comes to your house at election time, the bald guy that comes to your house asking for your vote at election time, and he's the guy that signs the elevator permits. For about three years, it was my uncle Al Mackling's really? signature so on the elevator permit. Well, it wasn't certainly a big deal back in the 80s. It was a big deal to those of us with the last name. Did he have a card, like, you know, Jim Carrey? Don't worry, I'm a limo driver. And your uncle's like, don't no. worry, I'm the elevator inspector. No. no, and I can tell you this for certain, he never inspected one single elevator Uh-oh. with his own two eyes, just so you know. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, what would you wait in line for, or what is something you don't understand why anybody would wait in line for that? One of our honors up here is Adrian. We waited in line for about three hours at St. Vitale Center to meet Kevin Glenn and Milt Stiegel and company. It's about 15 years ago. Our daughter wasn't feeling well and slept through the wait when it came time for the greet. She stayed asleep, but 85 signed her jersey anyway. 
Excellent. Uncle Tim, another runner up here with quite the tale. And Uncle Tim, forgive us. We had to just shave this down a little bit. He wrote a really eloquent story and painted a wonderful picture here. Uncle Tim says, I would stand in line for Stanley Cup final hockey tickets. Victoria Day, 1989, residing in Calgary. Calgary and Montreal were tied 2-2 in the final. The Flames had a policy of holding 2,000 tickets to game day for walk-ups. I set my alarm, intent on getting up early to get in line. I never slept in. But on this day, I slept through the alarm. I was furious at myself, but I thought, what the heck? So Uncle Tim says, I caught the train to the Dome, and upon arrival, the snake line of people was about a mile long. Through the Olympic Plaza area, to the back of the line I go. Two hours later, I'm next in line. Two windows only are open. I step up, and the woman smiled at me and said... We have four tickets left for tomorrow's night game. How many do you need? I was incredulous. Four, I said. I explained I was a student from out of town working at one of the oil companies for the summer and only needed one ticket. She smiled and went to the paper tickets between the ladies, picked out one ticket, row 32, seat one, right on the center red ice line. Cool. Center ice red line, rather. Wow. Game five, as a life of hockey, one of the greatest games I've ever intended, if not the best. Calgary three, Montreal two. The city and the game were crazy with thrills and excitement. And of course, Calgary won game six on Thursday in Montreal. And I would stand in line once again. Boy, oh boy, Uncle Tim, that was a great story, and it was mm. tough to to narrow this down. But as it turns out, the man who inspired this topic by tweeting about having to wait in line for a pumpkin pie at Costco over the weekend is our winner, Dan the Earl of Eli. Dan says, I've stood in line for everything from pumpkin pie to beer. There isn't a line that uh there is a line that I never stood in that I will never forget. In nineteen ninety-four, the Rolling Stones announced They were coming to Winnipeg. Back then, there was no such thing as the internet. And if you wanted tickets, you had to stand in line at one of the outlets that was selling tickets. At the time, I was stationed at CFB Shiloh, and I just couldn't get away to stand in line for the tickets. So a call to my newly retired father and asked him if he could do this for me. So my father got up at 3 a.m., stood in line for Stones tickets, and got them. The concert and the day of the concert is something I will never forget and has been a happy memory for me ever since. Way to go, Dad, for saving the day. Did he take Dad to the concert? Oh, that's an excellent follow-up question. Damn. Did you take your dad to the show, Earl of Eli? And I wonder if there was a follow-up conversation. Dad, I need you to go get in line and get me some Rolling Stones tickets. And if Dad said, calm down, it's not like it's Helix or something. Remember that from- <laughs> From the trailer park, trailer boys. park boys. <laughs> <laughs> that was was that the the Voodoo Lounge tour because they came they came, they came here twice, twice right uh, Voodoo Lounge was ninety four yes okay uh, Bridges to Babylon I think would have been ninety seven yeah. okay that's right that was the the other one yeah that was a pretty uh, we were outside of that stadium kicking ourselves for not even attempting to getting tickets so good. we could see the giant I seem to recall a giant serpent. In the, as part of their decor, yeah, those, their stage show was show was second to none back then. It's sort of dwarfed by what you see right now, but back then it was a sight to behold. So, congratulations, Dan, the Earl of Eli. You choose whether you want the passes for a Christmas rock story or passes for Witchy Wonderland at the Red River Exhibition Park, which is on from October thirteenth to the thirty first, and we'll give away more of this stuff all week long on the start.
Right now, we want to continue the discussion on Israel and Gaza because the death toll continues to rise since the Hamas militant group launched an unprecedented surprise assault on Israel from Gaza on Saturday morning. More than 1,500 killed so far. Yeah, and that count continues to rise, as you said. And this, of course, is as Israel orders a complete siege of the Gaza Strip, cutting off electricity, water, gas, and more. John Gilmore is a former national security analyst and formerly with the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and joins us now. Good morning, John. Good morning. How are you all? I'm good. You know, and there's lots of things to get to here. And so I want to start with just closest to the Gaza border because I know Israeli tanks have been moving in and around that area in the last 48 hours. But given Hamas is holding what we've been told is anywhere between 100 and 150 hostages, is there a sense ground troops would move in given the fact that Israelis would be held captive in that area? Great question. And and so I would suggest that, that the first round after the weekend is essentially over. Uh, the Israeli Defense Force has taken back most, if not all, of the Israeli land taken by Hamas over the weekend. And Israel is securing the border and, as you noted, has, has adopted sort of a, a food, water, power, uh, siege mentality. And airstrikes are going to continue. So we're now looking at the second round and how things are going to shake out going forward. And it depends on, on how I see it, four main issues. And you've absolutely touched on the first one. First, is Israel going to do a full-on intervention into Gaza? If so, uh, it's going to result in lots of casualties on both sides, as urban warfare is a brutal, nasty affair. Um, the Israeli Defense Force has called up 300,000 reservists, so that may be a good indicator of where they're going. Uh, but I'm guessing or suggesting that, you know, many have probably never seen actual combat before, as Israel hasn't engaged in, in a major combat operation since 2006. But if they do go in, as I said, I, and to reemphasize, it's going to be a nasty, brutal, brutish affair as urban combat uh, or urban warfare typically is. And as you suggested, uh, the second kind of main issue is the status of the Israeli hostages. Estimated to, me, estimated to be, as you said, around 150, uh, and they are a key consideration. Hamas has said it's going to start executing hostages if airstrikes continue, but historically, hostage-taking is a particularly sensitive issue uh, with the Israeli government. You mentioned the fact that the IDF, you know, the last major urban war would be 2006, so that's Lebanon, I'm guessing you're referencing, but I do believe in two, 2009 they did go in somewhat by ground into Gaza. Are we just talking about very different times now in terms of the escalation of this? That's right. That's right. Absolutely. But as I said, um, I'm guessing a, a majority of the reservists they're calling out haven't seen any anything substantial in terms of combat, so they may be inexperienced, and urban warfare is not a really good introduction to, to combat. As I said, it's nasty and brutal. Saturday morning's terror attack, which came by air, land, and sea, was unprecedented. John, don't need us to tell you that. Uh, Mossad, the Israeli Secret Service, uh, raided, viewed as one of the more powerful, uh, intricate, uh, successful organizations of its type on the planet. How did Hamas accomplish this, if we can use that word? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's going to be considered and, and reflected upon as, an, as a major intelligence failure. One suggestion has been that um, prior to the attack, Hamas went sort of uh, non-techie in terms of their communication, so there wouldn't be any signals intelligence. Uh, they would have gone by couriers or, 
or, uh, you know, hand-to-hand communication to, to have essentially radio silence. So SIGINT would, or Signals Intelligence wouldn't have been able to pick on that. But I'm surprised that Israel would not have had human source uh, agent networks set up in Gaza to, to uh, you know, let them know what was going on. There could have been some sort of complacency on the part of the government or senior intelligence officials that, you know, Hamas would not do what they did because it would have been too risky for them on a number of different fronts. So there may have been some hubris on the part of senior intelligence or government officials to the to the effect that they didn't think Hamas would would. Uh, you know, look at the the cost benefit or the risk benefit calculus and do what they did. Clearly, they miscalculated on that. What do we know about other groups or potentially even other countries that may have helped Hamas accomplish this? Well, a, a great point. Um, one of the assisting or one of the groups that has been rumored to uh, uh, to engage also was the um, Islamic Jihad, Palestinian Islamic Jihad. And that's interesting because one of the issues or one of the questions of why Hamas did what they did was because they thought the Islamic Jihad was putting pressure on Hamas uh, to do something more concrete against the Netanyahu government because they they sort of viewed Hamas uh, government as being you know too accommodating. So there was rumors or one of the reasons that it was suggested uh, Israel did what they did because they were pressure from those other groups, but. You know, getting back to other countries, um, an excellent point. There have been some skirmishes uh, and rocket launches uh, against Israel by the terrorist group Hezbollah on uh, Israel's northern border uh, with Lebanon. And there's a risk that Palestinians will engage in some sort of an attack from the West Bank. You know, if if that happens, if the tempo of attacks from Lebanon and the West Bank increases, Israel could be facing a three-front war, which is never an ideal military situation. And and to take it to the extreme, uh, the role of Iran in facilitating the attacks over the weekend has, has to be better established. If it was very direct with advisors on the ground or providing intelligence, for example, Israel may be tempted or under pressure to strike back at Iran directly in some manner. And of course, this has the risk of expanding the conflict beyond the immediate border area to a wider a wider regional conflict. John, help me out here. It, this feels as though this is very much an external agenda. And it feels as though, once again, correct me if I'm wrong, feels as though that these groups, these terrorist groups, are uh, we're ignoring what's going on internally in Israel. Because it, it, to, from, the, from where I sit, I don't know if Israel is, uh, has been in recent memory so so much upheaval within the country. It, it almost feels as though this would have been a good time to really sit on the sidelines. Yeah, great point. And and in fact, you know, one of the comments coming out of all this is that the, the domestic uh, the domestic situation in in uh, Israel, which has been you know fairly uh, you know unstable <laughs> politically because of the uh, some of the initiatives of the Netanyahu government. Um, clearly, all that is going to be pushed to the side now, and the country is going to reunify uh, in as a result of the attack. So, yeah, absolutely, it, it could have been a, it could have been part of the calculus that Hamas was actually looking at, uh, and perhaps they mis- they uh, you know they misunderstood or or didn't put much uh, weight on that particular issue um, in their risk benefit calculation. It could have been something they considered, but the the uh, benefit of going ahead with the attack probably overweighed that that particular issue. But no, I agree absolutely. 
they they should have just <laughs> stayed to the side and, and let things unfold in Israel, which could have undermined the position of the of the government, you know, at, at some point going forward. There's so many ways to go with the now what question, John, and you talked about the questions around intelligence and the potential failure there, a potential for a three-pronged war and what that might look like. In the meantime, the outside world is watching and then condemning uh, Saturday morning's attack, all sorts of words being spoken by different leaders. What role, if any, do you see in Canada plays here, or is this a sit-back, watch approach and see where this takes us? Well, it's going to be interesting to see. Well, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau has always uh, has already sort of adopted that. He's condemned the attack. He has become very vocal in saying that uh, Hamas uh, is a terrorist group, uh, and he was sort of sort of uh, alluding to the fact that they've been described as militants or freedom fighters, all that sort of stuff. And and he has come out and very vocally said yesterday in an interview, no, they are terrorists and they have to be represented as that. Uh, It'll be interesting to see what the Canadian reaction is if more Canadians are identified as as, uh, being victims of the attack on Saturday. I understand that there's one, definitely possibly two Canadians that were attacked. Um, I'm not sure what Canada can can play, uh, what what role Canada can play going forward. What the Israelis are going to be looking at initially, probably if this continues for some period of time, like they did in 1973, are weapons. They're going to they're going to start, especially if we have a three front war. uh, They're going to start depleting their ammunition and they're going to start looking for international support the way that the Ukrainians are doing uh, as a result of the Russian intervention. Um, Their stockpiles are probably fairly limited. And as the war progresses, as it did in 1973, they're going to start uh, seeing their ammunition supply decline and they're going to start looking for international support in that respect. I don't think Canada will be in a position to do a lot in support of that. They'll be looking primarily at the U.S. for that. John Gilmore, former national security analyst, formerly with the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. John, thank you very much for joining us. We appreciate it, sir. It's my pleasure. Hope it was helpful.